This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, How to Treat Your Dogs and Cats with Over-the-Counter Drugs, Companion Edition. And the veterinarian Robert Ridgway joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dr. Bob. Hi there. How are you today? Well, this is much needed. There's no doubt that, boy, if we can uh, help our pets and cats... uh, with over-the-counter drugs, and if we have a book like yours, and you describe 63 common conditions that many pet, pets have that can be treated at home by the owner. Of That's course, right. We, Either treated or prevented. Well, there and you course, go. Prevention saves a lot of money. <laughs> that saves a lot of money and also obviously helps the pet not to go through all that uh, discomfort and problems that could even, I'm sure, lead to death. This is very much needed, and I don't think there's any other book like it, is there? Well, if there is, I'm not aware of it. Um, my brother sent me a, a, a book, and I got it. And actually, I've, I've purchased two other books just to see, and neither one of them come close to this particular book. So, um, and uh, uh, I, I think that, that it's rather unique um, in its presentation and, and the and the goal that we're after to help people. Uh, with their pets to have a, a good, healthy pet with perhaps the least cost. Not It's not always the best way to do it, but, you know, we have to do what we have to do sometimes. Well, a lot of people won't even take their pet to a vet because of the cost, so it's uh, it puts them in a much different, helpful position. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Dr. Bob. Okay, uh, well, I graduated from Kansas State uh University College of Veterinary Medicine, 1971, and uh, I went to, uh, started in a practice in Topeka, Kansas, and I did that until uh, Uncle Sam uh, called me to active duty in 1971. Vietnam was still going on, and um, so I reported to Fort Sam Houston, Texas for my my uh, basic training in, in the Army Veterinary Corps. And uh, I, I spent, uh, I didn't know that I was going to spend a, a career there, but I ended up doing so. I, uh, I, I'm going to just hit a highlight. Um, I was the first Army guy to take charge of the Department of Defense Military Dog Veterinary Service in Lackland Air Force Base after the Congress of the United States did away with the Air Force Veterinary Corps. And that was a really a, a great job. And um, then currently I'm, I'm working for Orange County Animal Services in Orlando, Florida, and we used to go on weekends and give rabies immunizations. And what I noted was that people, their dogs were in, or cats were in very, very, very terrible condition, and they weren't taking their pets to see veterinarians. And I learned that many, many people, like you said earlier, just will not take their pet to see a veterinarian. In fact, if it gets bad enough, they just take it to a shelter and turn it in. They're not going to spend any money on it. And then I have friends who have told me they would like to go see a veterinarian, but they can't afford to go. And the other thing that I, I, I kind of researched before I wrote the book 
was that people will go buy things over the counter to treat their pets, and they will overdose the pet and either kill their pet or make it very, very sick. So I thought, at least, if nothing else, I could help those groups. And I know that there's other people who have a curiosity and interest and so forth who can use the book just as well. But those were the three basic reasons that I uh, concentrated on helping when I wrote the books. Now, would you call this a first aid book? No, I would not call it a first aid book at all. Um, I'd call it a how-to-do to book, but it, is not, it was not my intention to uh, publish or write a first aid book. I, I purchased a, a book that has been put out by the American Red Cross, which is a first aid for, for dogs, but uh, that was not my intention at all. Uh, I, I, this here goes way beyond uh, first aid, you know, like treating the internal parasites, and, and that's not first aid. Um, uh, treating uh, Demodex, for example, which is a skin mite, uh, treating fleas, uh, uh, dealing with uh, uh, t- uh, problems of teeth or collapse, uh, overexhaustion from heat, and, you know, the list goes on and on and on. So it, it, it's not my intention for it to be a first aid book at all. Now, what about calculating the dose of some over-the-counter drug to give to our pet? Okay. This was a concern of mine. <laughs> Not that everybody's math is bad, but I, I was super concerned that they would overdose. And if somebody uses a book and there's trauma, they're, they're going to be very upset. However, neither you or I or anybody else can be present when they make a decision to do whatever it is they're going to do for the pet. But with that in mind, whenever there's a dose, I put a chart in there. All they have to know is the weight of their animal look at the, the weight, and they'll get a dose. Because I didn't want anybody to have to calculate a dose. There's one exception in the, the first book, How to Treat Your Dogs and Cats with Over-the-Counter Drugs. But other than that, there's a chart for everything. Well, it's at a level for the lay public to understand, uh, easy to read. And it has well, some unique, uh, unique, you believe, maybe the only book, uh, Newborn Kitten and Puppies. Yeah, I, I, I wrote a whole chapter on, on um, the title of the chapter is From Birth to Six Months of Age. And so this deals specifically with newborn puppies and kittens. Um, and, for example, um, uh, uh, what to look for when doing exams of, of uh, less than four weeks of age, uh, kittens or puppies. And a lot of people don't even know, you know, hey, do I need to give them an exam and what do I look for? So I give them a, a, a list of things to look for. I, I cover such things as bottle feeding and avoiding aspiration, um, how to evaluate uh, puppies and kittens uh, five to six weeks of, of age or, or six months of age. And I, I describe on newborns uh, death loss and what is can be expected as a normal death loss in a, in a litter of puppy or kittens. And, then, of course, we all hope that they're all going to make it. But you have to face reality. And um, then there's a, a problem sometimes the uh, mama dog m- may stop taking care of the, of the young. And so I have a chapter on what they need to do with that. I'm referring particularly at the time of birth. 
and the, the mama dog just gives birth and then doesn't do anything with them. So I tell them what they need to do for uh, brand new newborn puppies and kittens if the mother dog or mother kitten does not take care of them. And uh, so, so that's kind of a thumbnail sketch of that particular chapter, but it, it's, if you, it, it's very, very extensive and very, very detailed uh, when you, you actually get in into that, uh, those, those subjects on that particular, uh, you know, from birth to six months of age. Now, chapter one is titled Trauma, and there's a number of different traumas. Is there something that kind of stands out that we need yeah. to really pay attention to with trauma? Well, yes, and first of all, let me just say this about trauma. The number one reason that a pet has trauma is because people let their pet out without supervision. They just turn it out loose, and I, don't, I can't tell you how many times I've been called on, on an emergency basis because their pet got hit by a car. That's absolutely their fault for letting the animal out of the house without supervision. Would you let a three, four, five-year-old child out? No, you wouldn't. But this is a family member, too, and, and they do it all the time, and they end up with broken legs, killed, or, or whatever. But one of the, the major things that's a big bugaboo for veterinarians is when they do surgery and the owner takes the, the pet home and the animal starts to lick at the, the surgery site, and the owner does nothing. And the, the dog just keeps, or cat just keeps looking at it. Next thing you know, you've got a great big open thing, and the sutures are come, have come undone. Whenever this happens, this is a, as an emergency. You need to get it back to whoever did the surgery so that they can take care of it before it becomes a major issue. Um, I can tell you story after story of people who have ignored uh, surgical uh, site. I'm going to call them... Uh, Suture failures somehow or another come untied or undone, either the animal chewing at it or some other thing, infection or whatever. And this this is a something that requires immediate attention. This is not something that you let go for a week, which unfortunately I see all too often. It just blows your mind that somebody would do that, but they do. Right. You have a great chapter on assessing your pet's health. Now, that obviously is a preventative, or maybe it, there's a red flag that you recognize. Well, yeah. See, um, if you own a pet, it'd be nice if you understand what you need to kind of look for to make sure that your pet is, is okay. And every so often you can uh, evaluate your pet, and at the back of the book I, play, uh, I put a place where you can put the date and what you have found. For example... You can take the temperature of your pet, and you can record the temperature. Say it's 101.5. Um, you can record the respiratory rate. It's, say it's, uh, respiration is 25 per minute. Blood flow, you can put your thumb on the gums and push on it, or your finger, whatever, and you'll notice that it blanches. It turns white, and then it'll immediately turn pink again. That uh, is called capillary refill. And if you push on that, and it's really slow, that means that there's the, the, the animal is, has lost blood. The blood flow isn't the way it should be. It's either lost blood, it's got a heart problem, whatever, and it might be an indication for you to either take to veterinarian to find out what the heck's going on. And then uh, I talk about uh, how they can obtain the heart rate. Uh, it's about 110, 120 beats per minute, uh, 
or 220, depending on the age of the animal. And um, then um, uh, I talk a little bit about uh, tapping for percussion. You put one hand down and take two fingers and tap it, and you tap on the chest, and it should kind of have a hollow sound. And, and you, you may recall your physician doing that to your chest, thump, 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 thump. He just moves it around, you know, he puts it on your abdomen and does the same thing. And if you, you tap on certain areas, then you, dis, you discern what is normal for your pet. So when you do it later and you find out, oh, my gosh, the temperature is 105 and uh, the respiration rate is uh, 65, you know you got a problem, you know. But if you record these as you, you, you learn to do this, and I know that everybody's not going to be no expert when they first do it, but the only way you're going to learn it is, is to do it and, and give it a try, give it a whirl, step up to the plate and uh, do the best you can and record it in the back of the book, and, and then the next time you do it, you'll, you'll be a little bit better, and you record it again, and then as you keep it up and keep it up, you, you'll, you'll, you'll know what normals are. And that's the only way you're going to learn it, is just to do it. Well, there's normal, and then there's abnormal, and you've got a whole chapter on developmental abnormalities, also one on diseases. Uh, give us a highlight or two concerning those areas. Okay. I want to give you a simple one in a male dog. There's a little times there's just a little piece of tissue on the penis that causes the penis to be deviated and urinates all over itself. All you need is a pair of scissors and cut it. There's no no um, uh, pain there. There's no nerves. There's no blood vessels. No nothing. And you just clip it with a pair of scissors, and, and that problem's gone. Um, one of the problems, and we just had a case of this today. Dogs going around and around in circles, or, or so-called tail chasing. And I, I don't know personally of, of a treatment for that. And uh, uh, this is a little dog that was doing it today, and he developed a real bad habit of chewing on his tail, biting it real hard, and then he'd yelp because he's biting it too hard. And he just keeps going around, 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 circle and biting. It, it, there's, to my knowledge, I don't know of any, any treatment for that, but I put that in there because I know that there are people who have this, this syndrome and uh, they're beside themselves on what to do. I also discussed uh, uh, euthanasia, which is uh, humane uh, putting the animal to sleep. There comes a time when they're suffering, and you can end the suffering. And uh, and I discussed how you'll know how to when when it is the time because that's probably one of the most difficult decisions a pet owner can make, and it is such a tear-jerking uh, and an emotional experience. And maybe the loss of a pet can be one of the most traumatic events in an individual's life because they come so contacted with it. Um, then on to diseases, um, I talk a little bit about warts and, or papillomas that get into the mouth of dogs. I, I haven't really seen that many in cats, but it seems to be in dogs. And um, there is a vaccine for, for warts. And supposedly it doesn't work very good. When I was in Okinawa, when I was in the Army, we had several pets in Okinawa that had warts, and the vaccine worked very well. So my conclusion to that is, see, uh, warts is a, is a virus that, we, that causes this in, in dogs. And I'm sure that everybody is familiar with flu and that there's many, many different viruses that cause flu. And so my conjecture is that there are different viruses that cause warts. They're very, very closely related because they all cause warts, but they're not uh, necessarily as sensitive one or the other. The other thing that I found, 
I, I don't know if it was an accident or the dog was biting or chewing on a, a wart, and I scraped it until it bled. You know, I, I got rid of the wart itself, and I scraped it deep into the gums, and the warts <coughs> seemed to disappear pretty quick when I did that. And uh, I think what happens, a lot of these warts are on the superficial dermis where there are no blood vessels, and when you scrape it like that, the virus gets into the blood vessels, and it allows an immune response to that particular virus, and it gets rid of it real quick when that happens. You've been listening to Robert Ridgway, a veterinarian. Uh, he's written his book, How to Treat Your Dogs and Cats with Over-the-Counter Drugs Companion Edition. Uh, Dr. Bob, tell us how to get your book. Well, <clears throat> there are several places. I, <clears throat> probably the cheapest is to go to Amazon uh, or, I mean, um, Barnes and Noble, <laughs> and have them order it for you. That way, you don't have to pay the freight. You can get it from iUniverse.com. You can get it from Amazon.com Books. And when you go to these things, uh, normally animal books don't pop up. It's some other books, so you need to put the title or part of the title into the search uh, line on any of those. Uh, let's see, Books a Million also has it. So. And there are many uh, other bookstores and online uh, bookstore or uh, online places that you can purchase the book. Also, the no- the number one is iUniverse, I guess, and uh, Amazon.com uh, Books, which is the biggest. Uh, I think uh, the, the easiest to get to. Thank you, Doctor Bob, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. You're quite welcome. My pleasure. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle, and sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 Central on toginet.com. Donna is a charismatic, market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio, plus your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intercastle, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie, Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now... These deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. 
Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Power Shift, From Party Elites to Informed Citizens. And the author is Vaughn Lyon, Professor Emeritus. And Vaughn joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Vaughn. Yes, I'm here. Well, great to have you here because you're going to be the teacher, and this is very important. Everyone needs to listen closely because we need to become informed citizens, and there's some real, obviously, we know from uh, history and from what's going on right now, uh, politics as usual is usually not very good for the citizen. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, I would, and I would uh I would add to that that politics is now so important. What the government does or does not do really shapes people's lives, even though they might not like to recognize that fact. But if you talk for just a couple of minutes about taking away government or even slashing it substantially, people realize that uh, that it is that important. And so that uh, when it is so important, the corollary of that is that people want to have a substantial or significant voice in deciding what that government is or is not going to do. And unfortunately, the present system does not give them that. They have to delegate that power to a political party, and that political party um, has its own agenda. It's not particularly, well, certainly not going to follow the agenda of public opinion polls, um, and it... uh, certainly is not even going to follow the agenda of the elected members. It's a top-down operation, and the politicians, um, the party leaders, are going to follow the directions of party leaders. So there's a huge gap between the party leaders who are really running the country and the citizens working away at his job and paying his taxes. Well, in the foreword... uh one of your supporters, he says, your goal is to empower citizenry, the necessary support for the strengthened government needed to grapple with 21st century challenges. And, of course, without an informed citizenry and a motivated citizenry and a mobilized citizenry, things just stay as usual, but usually they even get worse. That's right. We have to find a way of breaking out of the box. And I think the, the problem is that citizens want to have more control. Uh, overwhelmingly, they, they indicate that they want to control um, the person who is chosen to represent them. And that makes sense. Uh, if we hire a lawyer to represent us, we expect them to, to do that and not to, have, uh, not to respond to some higher authority. But one of the problems is that the, uh, the citizens are not organized and they're not informed. And I don't think I want to uh, transfer power uh, to 24 million Canadians who are, uh, who are ill-equipped uh, to exercise that power. So what I'm suggesting in the book is that uh, in each of our 308 constituencies, there should be a, a sub-parliament, if you will, called a constituency parliament, and it would be elected and it uh, would work with the member of parliament to determine the kind of representation he would give his fellow citizens so that there'd be pressure 
on the uh, MP from the bottom rather than all of the pressure coming from a party leader at the top. And the uh, MP then would be in a very strong position to say in Parliament that he is representing his constituents. Now the problem is that the constituency doesn't have a clear voice. Uh, if you're talking about a constituency, there's 100,000 people. Well, what do they really want? Uh, right now, it's likely to be taken seriously or taken uh, as the voice of the constituency what pressure groups are saying. But what we need to have is a linkage uh, so that citizens can organize, become informed, have the time to study issues. These, these constituency parliaments would just be around 100 people elected in a, in a uh, constituency of, a, of 100,000 people. And they would really be plugged into the system and they would work with their elected representatives and say, go to Ottawa, if this is what you want, we want you to do when you get there. And uh, if they go to Ottawa and the leader of the party says do something different, then the MP would have a real challenge of trying to reconcile those two pressures. And it's a healthy challenge. But now the problem is that he just has pressure from the top and no pressure from the citizenry because really, as I say, they're not organized and they're not sufficiently informed that you or I would like to turn over power to them. And organization is power. Yes, indeed it is. And uh, uh, I don't think Canadians realize um, how much power they really have if they were to, to organize. One of the difficulties they have experienced is that the political parties control the political agenda. They control basically what we talk about. And, of course, <laughs> they have been very studious over the years in not talking about what the people want, which is an alternative to political parties. And so that uh, we have a lot of people, the majority realize it, really, who think we have to have political parties. And that's a myth. That's a fraudulent myth, which the political parties, of course, have bought into and spread that, uh, yes, uh, you may not like parties, but uh, that's the way it is, folks. You've got to live with it. Well, my book argues you don't got to live with it. It would be very easy to um, organize, and very inexpensive, too, to organize local parliaments, to elect, elect local parliaments and let them um, speak for the population, which is now very poorly represented by parties. Vaughn, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you decided to take this tack. Well, I've uh, I've gone through the uh, party mill, as it were. I, over the course of my lifetime, I've belonged to several parties, seeking to find out uh, how much influence people could, party members could exercise through party machines. And it came to the conclusion <laughs> very early on that parties wanted people to join them for election fodder. They wanted someone to tack up notices on telephone poles and do the, the odd uh, jobs of that kind. But in terms of, uh, of being serious policy-making bodies for the government, for the party that is elected, uh, it's, it's a ridiculous idea. They don't pay much attention to the 
positions that the party's membership has taken. So I, I thought, gosh, there has to be something um, much more, a much more significant way for people to participate in the system. And having reached that conclusion, um, I did something not very radical, but what we should do more. I listened to people. And the pollsters have been telling us almost for a century, if you can believe it, that people wanted their um, elected member to be free of party control. And uh, 83% of Canadians say that's the case. But they have all been brainwashed into thinking that's impossible to achieve. And so I felt very strongly that as a political scientist, um, it was uh, really important for the discipline of political science uh, to offer people an alternative to the present system of representation. I mean, we're, we're sort of the doctors of the body politic, if you will have, would, if you would. And um, uh, we need to uh, take that role seriously and realize that we're not uh, the employees of our universities or, or uh, the political system. We're the people who are supposed to be standing outside um, these organizations and uh, looking for the truth. And the truth is not uh, that we cannot have alternative to parties. And uh, we should be providing the public, leading the public, in a widespread discussion of those alternatives. So I, uh, I felt that, look, here we have most people wanting um, constituency representation, which would bring people much more, make people much uh, an integral part of the policy-making process. And at the same time, what we desperately need, and all the politicians admit this, is a much closer relationship of citizens with their elected representatives because the government now is tackling all kinds of very significant issues which, without widespread public support, they're afraid of making decisive decisions because that, they feel, will, uh, will uh, ruin their electoral chances. So just to give you one example, in Canada we've been discussing a power, uh, policy regarding global warming oh, for about the last 20 years. But no party um, feels it's in a strong enough position to meet that issue head-on without losing the next election because there's, they have no way of reaching out and talking to citizens and explaining their position and not moving ahead until they have support from the public. So this is, I think, uh, posed a real dilemma. And it's a dilemma that our children, if we don't do something about our political system, uh, are, is going to have uh, to deal with because the problems that are on the horizon for liberal democracies are just growing more intensely as we see with the current uh, economic problems and the current problem of trying to come up with uh, a sensible policy on global warming and a sensible policy on, on immigration, the migrations of large numbers of people. All of these problems are going to get worse. And uh, governments that uh, do not have uh, a very close relationship with their citizens are not going to deal with them uh, without using coercion. And, and uh, yeah, coercion is something that's uh, inimical to democracy, and we don't want to see governments getting uh, 
more powerful unless those governments have very, very strong mandates from the people they're supposed to be serving. I'm, I'm afraid that we can't get away from strong governments, and uh, if that is true, uh, then we better make sure that we have control of those governments, and that's what my book is directed to. And you're hoping that your book will shake citizens out of their complacency. Absolutely. I think they're complacent because they don't know that there's, and I think they should be angry, but they, they don't know that there's a very uh, simple alternative to the present system which would give them the kind of representation they want. And uh, I think the politicians, and I think you know, some political scientists too, have been guilty of, of not opening that door to citizens and saying, look, you know, you're angry about the political system, you want more participation. It is possible. It is possible. In fact, it could be organized quite simply, and it would uh, result in you having the kind of, kind of uh, participation that you feel is practical at this present moment. I'm not, a, I'm not uh, advocating anything very dramatic. I'm not saying, well, I've got a system which is dominated by one man, We'll go to a system where 24 million Canadians vote on every issue. Not at all. What I'm suggesting is that we expand the system to bring in these members of constituency parliaments, roughly, there are roughly 24,000 of them across Canada, give them time to study issues, uh, give them time off work to study issues, uh, make sure that their member of parliament work with them, and uh, developed a, a, a position on the major issues facing the country, and then as the representative of their constituents, these MPs uh, returned to Ottawa, met with other MPs, and collectively they told the executive, which now tells them, now dominates them, it tells the executive uh, what Canadians want and how that puts them to work working on those uh, fulfilling those those policies. Well, we want to set so, the record straight. You're asking for a revolution, but you call it a quiet Canadian yeah. democratic revolution. Absolutely, because uh, Canadians are very open to reform. There's no need for for people to hit the streets or, or for, for there to be violence. Uh, if you study the positions that our leaders are taking, they all... Uh, almost all, take the position that there should be much more uh, interaction between them and their constituents. But then, then they hit that boundary. That boundary is the political party, and they're all members of the political party, and none of them are prepared to sort of break away and say, okay, if people want that uh, close relationship, it can't be established while the predominant relationship is the MP's uh, relationship with the Prime Minister. He's the big honcho. And uh, if there's going to be a really, another competing relationship, it has to be organized from the bottom up. And uh, that's important because our, our political leaders uh, are not uh, necessarily wise men uh, who can be trusted with the enormous responsibility of running a modern society. People in that uh, modern society, from all strata, all ways of life, 
deserve a, a, a voice in what is going to be done for and to them by the government. We've been listening to Vaughn Lyon, Professor Emeritus. He is the author of his book, Power Shift, From Party Elites to Informed Citizens. Vaughn, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's, uh, it's very easy. There are in a number of bookstores. Um, the chapters chain in Canada is, is uh, carrying the book, and a number of local bookstores are picking it up as well. Or it can be organized, ordered uh, online, of course, from the big uh, book distributors, and uh, or directly from our universe, the publisher. It's very easy to uh, it's very easy to come to uh, to find it, and uh, and uh, I think people will I think people will welcome the message that's there. It's a, it's an empowering citizen empowering message. Thank you, Vaughn, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Very welcome. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Show me the money! Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Hey moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Bazillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamamanyhats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Journey of a Warrior. And the author is Gerald H. Turley, Colonel, U.S. Marine Corps, retired. And Jerry joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jerry. Good morning. Well, Pleasure this, to be with you this morning. Well, this is going to be a fascinating uh, journey with this warrior, General Alfred Mason Gray. Uh, you were very close to him, served with him. We'll find out. Uh, a lot about this warrior as you describe him. And you say this about your book. This is an unusual story about a Marine who rose to become the commandant, 
four stars and then proceed to the top and prepare his divisions and air wings for service to the nation in the 21st century. Against all odds, he is selected to become the commandant. And we'll learn why that was uh, all the odds were against him and, and the impact that he's had on the Marine Corps. Jerry, tell us about yourself, your service, and how you got to know this great general. I uh, was enlisted, uh, served in Korea, came home, went over as a PFC, came home as a sergeant. Uh, they commissioned me as a second lieutenant, off to basic school at Quantico. In the next uh, 28 years, I served in the 1st Division, the 2nd Division, 3rd Division, 4th Division. We only have four. And I served overnight, uh, overseas uh, in Vietnam. I was there twice, uh, one time, uh, the first time with the U.S. Marines wounded once there. Second uh, tour was with the Vietnamese, South Vietnamese Marines as a senior advisor and was caught up there and stayed there in Vietnam until the end of the ceasefire. Came home, returned to headquarters Marine Corps, moved on to a selection for colonel, became a regimental commander, and then moved on to 29 Palms where the Marine Corps Desert Training Center is, and we train um, air ground teams and live fire exercises called a combined arms exercise CACs served there and uh, until I retired uh, I resided in California upon uh, President Reagan becoming the president I was invited to accept an appointment as a deputy assistant secretary of defense so as a civilian I went back in and served the nation for another three years after that was um during that time, I had re-linked up with General Gray. He was uh, first a brigadier general when he and I met the first time when I was a colonel. Uh, he saw me serving in the Pentagon and asked me if I would come and be a special assist to him during his tour. So for four years, I traveled with him, was never preempted from any type of a meeting and so forth. And I could see this individual making history. I didn't know if it was going to be good or bad, but he was changing things almost on a daily basis. Dramatic changes in this very traditionally bound Marine Corps. And as fate would have it, in the last six months of his tour, he becomes, as his tour as the commandant, he, the United States went to war in the Gulf, and everything that he had predicted and changed and demanded that we get out of coming across the beach and we learn how to operate ashore in maneuver warfare, fast-moving tanks, and so forth. All of those things came in and fitted perfectly into the the Iraq War, and uh, he just proved that his vision, his determination, his brilliance in many ways, and he was controversial, uh, did all the things right to make our Marine Corps better and more functional in the 21st century. A great, great effort. So the purpose of this book is to really focus on how one man can make a great difference. Absolutely. And uh, it, it's focused on young men, whether they're in the military or in the civilian world, in corporations, that if they, if they have integrity and they see vision, don't be ahead to uh, don't be afraid to to raise your sights so to speak and make your contributions and do what's right and uh, and you will be rewarded in many ways because of that integrity and your vision to do the right thing 
General Gray starts out as a private in the Marine Corps. <laughs> he certainly did. That's amazing. But, but he, he, he was in his third year of college when the Korean War came along. And so he quit, went into the Marine Corps. And to have a private with three years of college in your ranks is just amazing. And he excelled from there on for everything he did. From He was a corporal, a sergeant, to a lieutenant. He just, uh, but he was in the communications field and very strong in, in uh, superintelligence and counterintelligence. And that was his first uh, 10 years was in that until he was able to get an infantry battalion, which everyone aspires to do as a lieutenant colonel. And then he began to have an impact upon the Marine Corps. Now, he was radical to some. Uh, he was unconventional. And how was he able to change such a huge institution rooted in such history as the Marine Corps? I think that's really interesting. He, he, he was controversial because he would always give us more projects than we could handle. And then they would come back to him and say, now, General, uh, these are the 10 projects. You want. Which ones are the most important? He would never say this is the most important. He made him work at all of them. He said, if I do that, 10 of them will fall off and two of them they'll work on. But I want them to work on all of these. And so in many ways, he kind of was a schemer. He knew what he had to do. He knew the bureaucracy that exists in every staff, whatever the service is, even in the civilian world, to get things moving, to get things to change. You'd really have to be persistent and uh, and uh, push and push and demand response and backlink. And then doing that, uh, it took a year or so, but finally people begin to say, hey, you know, these are some pretty good ideas that we've been working on here. So he, he won them over, 90% of them, he won them over simply because he was showing there was a better way to do things. He saw a great change coming in warfare. It wasn't going to be traditional anymore, so to speak. Uh, terrorism was on the the uh, horizon. He saw it and then prepared the Marine Corps for such battles. He did. I think his uh, early years there in the in the very uh, what we call the Green Door, the intelligence community, and he was very very exceptionally good at that. Uh, primarily in the Western Pacific areas, helped him immeasurably as he then moved up the line because he could always reach back into the intel side of the house and go through that door and get information that others weren't well really aware of. And that helped him solidify his vision, what, what had to be done. So his determination to many of us was perhaps sometimes just being ornery and mean and uh, determined when, in fact, he had more insight than all of us had, and he knew that changes had to be made, and he wasn't going to fall off of it. He was going to stay with it. And at the same time, one of his uh, peers, Brigadier General Simmons, uh, called him compassionate. He was. He was very compassionate. Uh, One of the chapters in the book is the is the Beirut tragedy where we lost the 241 men in in the big building here on the 23rd of October, and the I assume that his great tour of duty as a Marine officer would be in combat, leading troops. When in fact, when these Marines were killed, he was the commanding general at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and. 
When the building blew up, so did all the records of all of the individuals. They couldn't find them. So now we have tremendous amount of people lost, but we don't have any health and medical records, and we can't find them. And it was a period of great disarray. And back at Camp Lejeune, he said, this is what we're going to do, anyhow. And he began to put a crisis center, a casualty assistance center together. And I think probably the amazing thing to me was, this was his finest hour in, in, in being a, showing his care and love for his Marines. Every one of those wives, those parents, brothers and sisters who came to Lejeune, were able to meet with him and help him. And he attended over 100 funerals of those guys. Now, how in the world can anybody do so much for people? And at the same time, it, it, all, it wasn't just show. 20 years later, he's still, 23 years later, he's still meeting with those families on an annual basis at Camp Lejeune where there's a memorial to the Beirut tragedy. 241 men left. And he made sure that every one of them was taken care of. That's why the word compassionate comes out. You've written this not as a biography. So what would you call your book? Uh, the reason for the title is that you can't just look at this man in, in one four-year period. You've got to go back and look at him and the institution that he's working in. And you put that all together and say, now, how did he fit into this thing? There are 29 commandants over the last 30 years, or the last 230 years. But very few of them have been looked at from the time they were a private, so very few of them, until the time he became the commandant. And if you have, you can't understand his decision-making process unless you are aware of the journey that he traveled as a major or as a colonel. He had successes. He had some bad failures. But he learned from each one of those. He never, and he never, ever lowered his uh, standard. He was always a pusher. We it better. We can do it better. We can do it better. Quite a man. Well, he certainly uh, fits everything you're saying. And, and this attitude of him, uh, it's interesting how some people, uh, we call them visionaries or we call them radical or they, you know, they're creating uh, revolutionary change within an institution. Uh, some call him uh, rocking the boat. Uh, but out of it comes uh, a much better uh, Marine Corps, more efficient, more effective to deal in all the challenges of the 21st century. I, I, I think that is a real insight here that you're asking. Here's the issue. Uh, in his lieu of being at the flagpole, so to speak, in the Washington, D.C., he spent all of his years in the field. He was a regimental commander, a brigade commander, that's a brigadier general, uh, a two-star general commander, a three-star commander, all of his years in the field. And and, and I say in the field, it, and he thrived by running to the, uh, the, the woods in the middle of the night, walking across a young man and talking and watching how equipment worked, how it didn't work. What could be better? What could do better with a new rifle or a new new vehicle? He gave us the uh, light eight-wheeled uh, eight light uh, vehicle that he got from Canada on loan. And in doing so, this LAV, light armored vehicle, in fact, changed the whole structure of the Marine Corps. We were no longer walking. Now we were able to ride and move fast across the battlefield. So he brought us the ability to do maneuver warfare. Marines have traditionally lined up 
along the line conventional, much like the Civil War. No one gets between us. Now we said the ground is not important. The objective is important. So the speed in which we can move. So he cost us, instead of thinking at 2.5 miles an hour that we walk, we're now moving at 20 miles an hour. All of these doctrines that has been so ingrained in Marines had to be swept out and new ideas brought in. And as he did this, he really convinced more and more people uh, at all levels of command that he had a knowledge, uh, certainly a greater knowledge than anybody else about field experience, about doctrine, about where we should fit into the to the naval role, a maritime strategy of the Navy and the Marine Corps. He modernized all of this to the point that it, he just convinced everybody we were going in the right direction. He is described, as you have said, in different ways as a maverick. Is that one of the reasons he didn't end up in Washington? <laughs> I think that's a good Maybe they kept him away from the flagpole. Actually, exactly. he was more, he was more, um, more concerned about the troops than that he was about anything else. He, he had his letter in to retire. He was a three-star, and he knew that in June a new commandant would come in. And in March, he wrote his letter of resignation as he would retire. And he set that aside. And as soon as the announcement was made on who was going to be the new commandant, he would submit, like all the others, he would submit his letter. And then the, common, the new commandant could decide who he wants to pick out and who he didn't. So Gray didn't anticipate becoming the commandant. Just some freak circumstances allowed him to to uh, be nominated at the top. And that was really the Senator Jim Webb from from Virginia, who was a former Marine, Navy Cross, Silver Star, medically retired from Vietnam. And he was the Secretary of the Navy. And he said, I want a warrior to lead this Marine Corps out of the malaise that we're in and into the 21st century. He went through all of them. And he didn't, he looked at Gray and tried to set him aside and and he looked at others, and they were all good. But he said, this one has so much field experience. This one has demonstrated ideas that we can change things. And in doing so, he selected, in the middle of the night, called General Gray and said, hey, I want you to become the next commandant. So General Gray was uh, not certainly not planning for it. He and his wife had already looked for a, a home up in the Virginia area, and they were all set to do those things when he was announced that he would become the commandant. Well, it's great to hear a true story of a man who doesn't fit politics as usual, which seems to be the uh, theme of today's uh, of happenings in government and in Washington and elsewhere. So uh, congratulations, Jerry, for writing this book. Tell us how to get the journey of a warrior. May I, may I make one comment? Please. Uh, uh, Gray was the type of a person that would sneak in the back door. <laughs> uh, and But everyone knew he was in the room. He kind of had an electricity to him. I mean, uh, he thrived on it. The troops would love him. They they would cheer him and love him. Um, one time he was in the desert, and a Marine says, Would you promote me, a little young Marine? Or would you re-enlist me? And the guy said, yeah, the commandant says, yeah, they stood up on a tank in the deserts of, of Iraq and Saudi Arabia. And before he could give the old nine more Marines right up there, said, sure, General, General, me too, me too. 
he had ten guys re-enlisting. That just he was so infectious mm. uh, that uh, everybody loved Al Gray. Jerry, tell us how to get your book. Oh, the book will be uh, put out by iUniverse. It should be Press of University of Indiana. By the way, that's a great publishing company. If you're an aspiring author, I would talk to those things and look at their marketing and their building program. Excellent. Uh, the uh, university was very helpful. Uh, I chose them because of their well-laid-out plan. The books will now be come out of the university uh, presses, I guess, later this month in June, and it's already on uh, Amazon. And it's available, um, it certainly be, uh, the book should be across the shelves within the middle of July. Well, that's I'm kind a- of excited, I'm, I'm excited about it. His, it was not a labor of love, believe me. He, <laughs> he, had, he was a temperamental guy. And his work real in sometimes. But his story needed to be told so we understand that there are really some great people in this world who only, only pursue what's really best for the nation and he did it. We've been listening to Gerald H. Turley, Colonel, U.S. Marine Corps, retired. He is the author of his book, The Journey of a Warrior. Jerry, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you very much, and look forward to talking to you again. Bye now. God bless. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.